The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, having gone through our announcements and said all that, let's make sure we're prepared for worship this morning. Bow our heads together for, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin to pray just to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to take in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have as a body of believers to gather together this morning to study your word, for your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is your word that is absolute truth, that illuminates all of our thoughts, and illuminates every issue in life so that we know how we should think and how we should live, that we might be victorious as, as uh, witnesses in the angelic conflict and that you might receive maximum glory from our lives because of the way your grace is manifest in our lives. So, Father, now as we submit ourselves to the teaching of your word, we pray that we might be able to see how these things apply to our own lives, our own thinking, that we may advance in our appreciation of your grace and your phenomenal provision for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 5. Hold your place there. I want to look at Ephesians Two as an opening intro, Ephesians chapter two verse ten. Usually we quote Ephesians two eight and nine, and sometimes overlook verse ten. The question that is often asked today, that is creating a tremendous amount of confusion in many circles, is what is the relationship of works to salvation? There are those, especially in, in the camp that we call the Lordship camp, Lord, teaching Lordship salvation, who teach that works, and that term is left somewhat fuzzy and nebulous, that works are a necessary and inevitable consequence of saving faith. In other words, if you have true saving faith, you will have works, and those works will be the evidence of your faith and the basis for the assurance of your salvation. That, of course, has problems because ultimately, as we've studied in the doctrine of eternal security the last few weeks, that if you believe that, you're basing your assurance and the evidence of your salvation not solely on faith alone in Christ alone, but on what you deem to be uh, works of righteousness in your own life. Yet, how do we ascertain what are works of righteousness in our own life versus just morality produced under the filling, I mean, under the energy of the sin nature and the power of the sin nature? works of morality that any unbeliever can do on his own power. Secondly, it raises the whole question of just what are works? Are works imperceptible changes that take place in the mentality of the soul, or are they overt actions? The idea that works are the necessary consequence is not only held by lordship, but also by some people in the, in the grace camp, and they would say that if you have, if you believe in Christ, since faith alone in Christ alone, they would make no distinction between uh, a faith in Christ that saves and a faith in Christ that doesn't save, but they would say that there is necessary inevitable fruit or production from a 
person who is regenerate, although there are many who may have imperceptible fruit, that is, fruit that takes place in the mentality of the soul that is rather, um, that is unobserved and unobservable by anybody else. But it is observable in the angelic realm, and God knows that fruit is there. And that's not too different from what we would say, because they're not going to get wrapped around the axle on the fact that that, that is the assurance of salvation. Uh, in fact, Dr. Ryrie takes that position, and Dr. Ryrie is very strong on eternal security, and that the assurance of our salvation is based on the promise of God and not on observable evidence, because who among us can judge or discern what is truly the fruit of the Spirit versus the production of our own flesh? Now, I don't believe that is a correct position. I believe that, that um, works, we are created for the purpose of works of righteousness, but those are secondary because works are production. Production means that, and this is something I find many people don't understand, that at the moment of salvation you hear X. X equals the gospel. And X produces or results in, let's just say, or you hear the gospel and the response in you is faith alone in Christ alone. Production is the consequence of or application of a point of doctrine. If you don't know anything more than Jesus died on the cross for your sins, how can you apply it? Now, granted, there are many people who understand because of their culture and because of certain things that they have heard, they understand some general principles about Christianity. But let's take somebody who's out in the bush in Africa, who's never heard anything about Christianity, grows up in a, in a, in a culture that is absolutely divorced from any establishment truth, and all that person knows is X, that Christ died on the cross for their sins, and so they apply it. And then they go back to a polygamous marriage, and they have whatever their culture has that gets them high, and they get drunk, and they do commit various sins that, are, that they don't know are sins. And there is never anything else in their life, never any more doctrine that comes their way other than just the gospel. That person is clearly saved. There can be no other production. This is the problem that I see with this whole idea that, that the gospel or that a regenerate nature, we'll use the initial R in here, is necessarily going to produce some sort of fruit, whether it's perceptible or imperceptible. Production is the consequence of doctrine. If there's no doctrine there, how can it produce anything or how can you apply it? And so it lends itself to what is, I consider, one of the dangerous, most dangerous ideas in Christianity and in evangelicalism. And it's, it's in our heritage as Protestants from pietism, Keswick movement, all of these different historical antecedents we have. There is this soft element of mysticism. And that's exactly what this is, that somehow at salvation when you are given this new nature, your sin nature is not quite as bad as it was before and won't be quite as sinful as it would have been. And so somehow the Holy Spirit is just going to produce this effect in you, this, this 
these works of righteousness apart from the knowledge of any scripture. That's mysticism. It just happens. There's, there's, there's no basis for it. There's no true uh, basis in the Word of God. And what we're going to see in our text today in Galatians chapter 5 is that production is based upon application of doctrine. And application presupposes knowledge of doctrine. You can't apply what you don't know. You can't know something unless you have learned it. Learning it involves being taught it, either verbally or through the written word. So you have to learn something before you can know it. You have to know it before you can apply it. And application is what the Bible talks about in terms of production or fruit in the life. Now, lest I be accused when I discuss this of being an antinomian, for that's usually the knee-jerk reaction of the opposition, is that anybody who teaches this is really an antinomian because I'm amazed at how many theologians, sound biblical theologians in many, many ways, are just scared to death that you're going to give people an opportunity or a basis for rationalization of sin. And yet, even the Apostle Paul did that, and that's why he responds at the beginning of Romans 6, 1, What? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? No! You see, after he discusses grace in chapters, Romans chapters 3 and chapter 4, he realizes that some people can come along and take what he has said about grace in Romans 3, 4, and 5 and use that as an excuse to sin. But he denies that. Never does the grace of God give us a basis for rationalization of sin. We are saved for a purpose, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's at regeneration when we were, we were born physically alive and spiritually dead. And at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are given a new spiritual life. God the Holy Spirit creates and instantly and simultaneously imparts to us a human spirit. We have a new nature. We are new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we are created in Christ Jesus for Hina. In the Greek, it introduces a purpose clause for the purpose of good works. This is divine good, good of intrinsic value. This is the purpose for which God has saved us, is so that He can produce in us divine good which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should walk in good works. This is the purpose for our salvation, that grace does not provide an excuse or rationalization so that we can go out and and give vent to our sin. That is antinomianism. And grace is very different from antinomianism. Grace recognizes the freedom of the believer to choose to sin in negative volition and to continue in sin for the remainder of his life if He so chooses, but the consequence is going to be excessive divine discipline, even to the sin unto death, and a loss of eternal rewards in heaven, but not a loss of salvation. Now let's turn back just a couple of pages to our passage in Galatians chapter 5 and pick up the context, for we are in the midst of a contrast. In the first four verses of chapter 5, the apostle has been talking about the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, that it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then we have the mandate, therefore stand firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now in context, this is slavery to the sin nature and slavery to the Mosaic law. 
Because what had happened in the background here in Galatians is that when Paul came into town and he taught the gospel, the gospel was faith alone in Christ alone. Then when Paul and Barnabas left town, they were followed by a group of Jews. And the Jews that came along behind them said, well, that's good as far as it goes, but it's, it's not really everything there is to the gospel. You have to add something. You have to add the Mosaic Law, specifically in the realm of circumcision, as a sign of your being under the Mosaic Law and being entered into a relationship with Abraham. Because they're interpreting the relationship of Abraham as a, as a physical relationship. In other words, you have to be a Jew to be saved because the Scripture says salvation is of the Jews. So circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they're arguing that you have to be circumcised plus obedience to the Mosaic law. So this resulted in two major heresies. Heresy number one had to do with salvation. Salvation was faith plus works. Specifically, in this case, circumcision, but today we find it under the guise of baptism, church attendance, giving to the church, ritual, continuous obedience, all of these kinds of things are introduced as necessary conditions of salvation along with faith. In other words, Christ's work on the cross is not enough. That's the implication. When Jesus Christ finished paying the penalty for our sins on the cross, He said, to telestai. And that's the uh, perfect form of the verb, meaning it has been paid once and forever. Paid in full. Archaeological discoveries of various papyri from that uh, first century era have discovered that on bills that were given, that when that bill was paid, what you would write at the bottom of that bill, we would write paid in full, they would write to telestai. And that's what it means, paid in full. Nothing more needs to be paid. After you get your bill for whatever you may be billed for and your visa bill comes and you pay the... uh, pay the bill in full, you don't pay it again. You don't add to it. You don't decide next month, well, I'm going to add to last month's bill just because I'm so nice and I'm so generous. And yet that's exactly the mentality among most Christians is they say, well, I'm going to believe in Christ alone for my salvation, but just to make sure I'm saved, I'm going to add something to it. I'm going to add works to it. And what they're saying is when Christ said paid in full, he really didn't know what he was talking about He really didn't pay it in full. I have to uh, pay it and add something to it. That's heresy number one. The second level of heresy has to do with the spiritual life or sanctification. And their works was also introduced. And this is faith plus works. Specifically in the Galatian situation, it was defined as the Mosaic Law, obedience to the Mosaic Law. In our era, it is morality. Because, remember, the Mosaic Law is very moral. It is a high moral standard, one of the highest moral standards in a law code ever written in human history. And yet, and so, it is very moral. Now, for us, it's faith plus morality. But people today don't think very much about morality, and when they define the spiritual life and look at somebody to see if there is really fruit there, what they're really looking at is... uh, Are they moral? Are they good people? They look at their character. We often forget that the unbeliever can be very moral, 
the unbeliever can have outstanding character and have a tremendous amount of virtue and integrity, but it is not produced by the Holy Spirit. And that's the issue in the spiritual life of the church age. It is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter. Specifically in relation to the question that we're asking right now, which is what is the relationship of works to salvation between what we study on Sunday morning in Galatians 5 and what we study on Wednesday night in James chapter 2 in the next two or three weeks, we're going to see how this question is answered in the Scriptures and look at some of the uh, toughest passages to understand in the Bible because they are not accurately translated in many cases or accurately understood. So Paul comes along in verse 2 and he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision... Christ will be of no benefit to you, of no value to you. He will not profit you. In other words, it's not so much an issue of are you saved, because at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you are entered into that eternal relationship with Jesus Christ. We are positionally united with Him. We are in Christ, and we can never be removed from that position. And what Paul is saying here is if you go the law route, We'll draw a bottom circle here. This represents our relationship with God in time. At the moment of salvation, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. But the instant we introduce morality or we try to uh, uh, gain the approval of God through our own works, we're out of fellowship because this passage is going to say that this is produced by the flesh. And that's what Paul is saying here, that if you receive circumcision, if you do anything in life, whether it's circumcision whether it's giving to the church, whether it's going on the mission field, whether it's dedicating your life to Christ by walking the aisle or whatever else it might be, if you think that is going to be the basis by which God is going to bless you, then you're committing the Galatian heresy. Because they're saying, if I perform this act, then God is going to now bless me and that will advance me spiritually. And what Paul is saying is if you engage in legal obedience or morality for the purpose of gaining God's approval, then Christ is no longer any benefit to you. You have lost fellowship. You are out here under this control of the sin nature in the production of human good and dead works and morality. And morality is part of establishment truth. Morality is for every human being, believer or unbeliever, for the perpetuation, stability, and protection of the human race. So Paul says that if you enter into legal obedience, Christ is not going to be of any benefit to you because you will be out of fellowship with God, operating on the power of the sin nature. And then he says in verse 3, and I again testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. If you, This is very interesting Because what Paul is saying is uh, in this passage is that if you want morality to be the basis for the spiritual life, then obedience to to the law, and what you are saying is that obedience to the law from the assumption that certain behavior on the part of the believer is the basis for divine blessing, severs you from fellowship with Christ, removes you from the sphere of grace. And if you try to do it in one part of the law... You have to do it in the whole of the law. You can't sever it. 
Now, in contrast, what we've seen over in James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, is James says that if you violate the law in one little bit, you violate the whole law. So even if the sin you commit is somewhat innocuous by comparison with other sins, such as showing partiality to someone, acting in a prejudicial manner, that is just as much an unrighteous act and just as much a violation of the integrity of God as if you commit adultery or murder. So James' conclusion is is the same. They're in harmony. They're addressing it from two different points. So these people who say, well, there's this conflict between James and Galatians don't understand that each writer is coming from a different position and arguing to a different to, to, to the same conclusion. And that is, if you're going to be under the law, you have to be under the whole law. And if you violate the law in, a, in part, you violated the whole thing at the same time. So Paul is condemning legal obedience here and showing that by, by this comparison, saying that if you receive circumcision, you have to keep the whole law. James says if you break the law in one part, you violated the whole. The conclusion from that is that the law won't get you anywhere. You put the two together and you realize legal obedience or moral obedience then has nothing to do with the spiritual life. That the spiritual life goes far beyond human morality. It is not that I'm saying that this is the spiritual life is immoral. But morality and ethics is a system. It's a system of behavior that any believer or unbeliever can carry out. The spiritual life goes far beyond that. It includes all of the principles of morality, but goes beyond it because it is based upon principles of virtue produced by God the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 4, Paul says, you have been severed from Christ. This is what he means back in verse 2. Christ is no benefit from you. You've been severed. You've cut yourself off by being out of fellowship. You who are seeking to be justified by law. (coughs) Now, what does he mean by that? These Galatians, some people think that this is referring just to those who committed the first heresy, which is faith plus works, faith plus the law. But what has happened here is that when Paul came into town, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone and you will be saved. And they said, okay, we believe that. And they were saved. Now the Judaizers come along and they say, no, that wasn't quite enough. If you really want to be justified, you have to obey the law. So now they're trying to be justified. They, were, they realized initially the justification occurred at one point in time. You go through life, you make one decision, and you trust Christ as your Savior. And as a result of that, God the Father immediately imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And now you possess the perfect righteousness of Christ, even though you're still engaged in many heinous sins. No matter who you are, even if you were as evil and wicked in human terms as a, as a Stalin or Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein or, or Milosevic or any of these evil people in human history, no matter how evil you are or how criminal you've been, like a Jeffrey Dahmer or someone like that, you're still minus R. And what this passage is telling us and what James is telling us is even if you're not that wicked, the sin that you have committed has placed you under the same debt of obligation as the sins that they've committed. Because if you violate the law in the least of it, James says, you violated all of it. 
So it doesn't matter that your sins are much more socially acceptable and not nearly as heinous as those of these mass murderers and, and extreme criminals. In the eyes of God, you're just as much a violator of His absolute standard as they are. But the righteousness of God is applied to you, is imputed to you at the moment of salvation, and God looks at that perfect righteousness of Christ and He declares you just. That's what salvation is all about. And once you are just and you are regenerated, you are justified, then the purpose is for you to fulfill God's plan. You are created for good works. But that does not imply the necessity of good works. Now, if you get involved in legalism, as many believers do, two seconds after they're saved then you sever yourself from Christ and you will never produce anything other than morality and good works for the rest of your life. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 4. You've been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. That's what happens in so many churches and so many Christian denominations. They look at works as a process of showing justification. So they confuse justification with sanctification. How do you know you're saved? How do you know you're justified? You know you're justified by looking to see if you're sanctified. They make justification a process. Now, this is not easy to understand, and I remember when I first heard this when I was taking Romans in seminary. And it took me years to really understand all of what that meant. But in many religions, what you have is the fact that you enter the relationship with God on the basis of the cross. But you don't know if you're saved. You have to engage in some ritual again and again. You have to produce some level of morality. You have to get involved in discipleship. You have to pray. You have to read your Bible. And the list goes on as to the things that you must do in order to uh, show and demonstrate that you are saved. And it's not till you get way down here, some 40, 50, 60 years later, at the point of physical death, that you then look back and see if these things are all in in place. And if they're there, then you can say, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. So that these works then become the evidence of your salvation. And salvation isn't a point in time. Justification is a process. And justification and sanctification are very subtly in some systems and overtly in other systems. Sanctification are confused and made to be virtually identical. But what the Bible says is justification is a point in time. Phase 1 says that when you enter into salvation with faith alone and Christ alone, that's when you enter into the plan of God. And phase 2 is the spiritual life. And they're distinct elements in God's plan. They are not the same thing. Sanctification truth is different from justification truth. Don't confuse the two. Paul says that when you do that, you cut yourself off from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. They were justified by faith alone in Christ alone at the cross. But now that they hear this false doctrine that they have to obey the Mosaic law, 
They're trying to be justified by obedience. They've shifted from justification being a point in time to justification being a process. And this means that they have fallen from grace. And we saw that what that word pipto means here is they have departed from grace orientation in the life and now they're operating on the principle of legalism rather than grace. Now we have a contrast. Verse 5. Four. It begins with the particle in the Greek gar. And gar always introduces a, an explanation. Now Paul is going to explain the principle underlying his statement here in verse 4. For we, that is, believers who, adva- who are advancing and maturing in the spiritual life through the Spirit. That's how it's translated with three words, through the Spirit, and it translates just one word in the Greek. The Greek word is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, and it is in the dative case. It is a uh, neuter singular dative, and it could be a reference to the human spirit, it could be the reference to thinking or an attitude, or it could be a reference to the Holy Spirit, and here it is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The dative case indicates instrumentality or means. And what Paul is saying here is in contrast to those of you who are seeking to be justified by means of the law, there are those of us who are seeking to, who are advancing by means of the Spirit. So we have to show this contrast. The translators in the New American Standard who translated this dative as a through really missed the boat here because in the English you can't see what Paul's saying. You can't catch the contrast. There is one crowd who is seeking by law to be justified, but Paul is saying we are seeking by the Spirit. There's a direct contrast. It's one or the other. It's not both. You can't be partially a legalist and partially spiritual partially in the flesh, partially by the Holy Spirit. It is one or the other. For we, and we ought to translate this by means of the Spirit. This is a reference to the filling of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. This is the second problem-solving device or stress buster as we've been studying in James. This passage is very important because it includes three of the basic stress busters which are essential to the spiritual life. You see, the, the ten stress busters that we've been studying in James on Wednesday night are, it defines the whole spiritual life. This is, this is how spiritual growth takes place. These are the skills, the spiritual skills that we develop in terms of application of doctrine. When James says, become Uh, doers of the Word. He's not talking about praying and discipleship and ritual and all these other things that people come up with. He's talking about applying these spiritual skills. It begins with uh, confession, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because what happens is that if you're a Galatian believer and you have bought into the false doctrine, and you're operating on the power of the flesh, you're, you're in legalism. Now you have to change your power base, because the power base for the spiritual life is not the law, 
It's not the energy of the flesh in terms of human good and the area of strength. It is the Holy Spirit. So how do you go? This is what's so important, and this is what you don't find people talking about, is if a human, if, if a believer can produce good works and morality that imitate and counterfeit the spiritual life into all external observance from, from your own frame of reference or from somebody else's, you look like you're an advancing believer because you're good. You're doing everything externally that people think you ought to do as a believer. Then how do you discern the difference between someone doing that as a production of the flesh and someone doing that as a production of the Holy Spirit? That's the key issue. How do you discern the difference between good work and morality that's produced just through your own basic ability in the sin nature and good work that is uniquely the product of God the Holy Spirit? And if you're operating in one realm, in the realm of the law, in the realm of legalism in the flesh, how do you get to the point where now you're operating by the Holy Spirit? The answer in Reformed theology is, well, you just start doing what the Scripture says to do. But you see, that's what you've been doing in the flesh, what the Scripture says to do, but you've been doing it to the best of your ability. You haven't been doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there has to be some means, some mechanism, some skill that transfers you from the power, operating on the power of the sin nature to operating in the power of the, of, of the Holy Spirit. And that's what confession is. That's where confession comes in. It's admission, acknowledging of sin, that I've been operating in the sin nature, admitting our sins to God, and then at that moment we're forgiven, we're cleansed of all unrighteousness, whether we recognized other sins or not, whether we remembered them or not, is not the issue. We confess that which we know and remember, and all other sins are forgiven. And at that moment we recover fellowship with God, and remember, fellowship is the unique domain of God the Holy Spirit. It is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and we are... Uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is the first power option in the spiritual life. The spiritual life is based upon two sources of power. It is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so we confess our sins and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and then we can move forward. So that's why Paul includes both of them here. For we, by means of the Holy Spirit, and then he says... From faith. It's a bad translation. They translated by the phrase by faith makes it look as if the contrast is between by law and by faith. And that's not the contrast at all. The contrast is by law or the Holy Spirit. Because the term spirit here is in the dative, and the term law is in the dative back in verse 4. They're seeking to be justified by means of law. And here, what we have is not by faith at all in the original Greek. It looks like this. It's the preposition ek plus the noun pistis in the, in the genitive form. Ek plus the genitive of pistis. So ek means source. From the source of faith. Faith means to trust. It indicates here the faith rest drill. For we by means of the Holy Spirit from the source of faith. Our faith and trust in what? It is not faith in faith. That's mysticism. So often when you hear people go through trouble, they say, well, I just believe things will work out. 
what they're really saying is, I have faith, that as long as I have faith, in faith, things are going to be okay. They're not claiming anything specific. They just have this optimism that things are going to work out. It's a faith in faith, and that's essential to mysticism. And the Scriptures always say that faith itself is non-meritorious, whereas in religious systems, the merit belongs to the works. Because you have these works, God is going to bless you. Faith is non-meritorious. All of the merit belongs to the object. That's what we mean when we say faith is non-meritorious. The object of faith is Jesus Christ. He did all the work. It is His righteousness that gains a standing with God so that it is by means of faith alone in Christ alone that we have eternal life and then we advance on the basis of faith in the Scriptures and utilizing the faith rest drill which begins with the principle of mixing uh, our faith with the promises of God. Second Peter 1, 3 and 4 emphasizes the sufficiency of Scripture and the promises of God as the tool for advancing spiritually. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, the grace of God has granted to us everything pertaining to life, that is eternal life, and godliness. Eusebia there should be translated the spiritual life. So God has granted to us everything pertaining to one, eternal life, and two, the spiritual life. Just because you have an eternal life, an eternal destiny with God in heaven, doesn't mean you're going to have much of a spiritual life. That's why it's broken down into two categories. It is advanced through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, that is, by means of the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature. What does Peter mean by partakers of the divine nature? He means the same thing that Paul meant earlier in Galatians chapter 4 when he said that Christ is being formed in you. This is the character of Christ being formed in us. That's how we become partakers of the divine nature. The character of Christ is being formed in us. Well, how does that happen? That happens under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. As we take in the Word of God and exercise our volition to learn the Word of God and to metabolize it, it becomes epinosis in the soul, which is application doctrine. Once we have it in the soul as application doctrine, the Holy Spirit will bring it to, to our memory so that we can apply it in the midst of various tests and trials. And when we apply it, then we advance spiritually. So we see that the two spiritual options come together. The filling of the Holy Spirit, number one, and the Word of God, number two, come together to produce the spiritual life in the believer. You can't do it with one or the other. Now, what's happening in Galatians is they're trying to do it through works. And they're thinking that their works, their post-salvation works, somehow accrue to them value and approbation in the sight of God. And this is the essence of legalism. So we have to keep coming back to this important word, righteousness. Righteousness. Over and again, we find this concept of righteousness in the Scriptures. Now, this passage, as I stated, I don't want to get lost, and I don't want to lose you. This Scripture starts off talking about the second problem-solving device. We, by means of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, from faith, the faith rest drill... Faith rest drill has its object, the promise of God. That gets us doctrinal orientation. So here we see the basic fundamental problem-solving devices or spiritual skills 
which are, which are fundamental to spiritual childhood. From rebound, confession of sin, we get the filling of the Holy Spirit, then the faith rest drill, which begins to orient us to doctrine and to grace. This builds both grace orientation, that it's all based on what God did through Christ on the cross, and doctrinal orientation. We begin to orient our thinking and our lives to Bible doctrine. These are fundamental to all of the more advanced problem-solving devices or stress busters. Now, stress buster number six is the personal sense of eternal destiny. This focuses on who, where we're going and who we're going to be in eternity. That's often evidenced in Scripture or indicated in Scripture through this word in the Greek, elpis, E-L-P-I-S. Elpis. Elpis is usually translated into English by the word hope. But hope is a rather weak, pusillanimous word for the Greek concept of hope. See, when we think of hope, we think, well, I I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow because I want to go fishing. It's just sort of an optimistic wish. And yet the Greek term has the idea of confident expectation, the idea of certainty. We use the word hope, and it's sort of, uh, uh, we're, we're not sure. There's an element of uncertainty to it, but we're, we're hopeful, we're positive. There's optimism there. It's optimistic uncertainty. But what we have in the Scripture is optimistic certainty. It is, in essence, we are waiting for the, with confident expectation for righteousness. And the word righteousness is in the genitive case, which indicates here it's a genitive of apposition. It's what the hope will produce, the hope which is righteousness. And it looks forward not to phase one, which is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. This is phase one at the cross. We have the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. In phase two, as we advance spiritually, under the filling of God the Holy Spirit, we produce divine good, which is the fruit of righteousness, production righteousness, Hebrews chapter 13. But at the moment of salvation, we are absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We have no more sin nature, and we are in actuality perfect. We have perfect righteousness in our experience for all eternity. So this relates to phase one being the the salvation from the penalty of sin because we possess the imputed righteousness of Christ. Phase two is salvation from the, uh, from the uh, power of sin as we put to death the sin nature and advance by means of doctrine and the Holy Spirit. We pr- produce righteousness. God the Holy Spirit produces righteousness in the life. And then in phase three, we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord. We are saved from the, from the presence of sin. And so we have actual righteousness. Now, righteousness is the key term in all of this. We go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and we realize that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And the word justify comes from the Greek verb dikaio, D-I-K-A-I-O-O, which is the verbal form and the noun is dikaiosune. Now, this is a very important word group to understand here because this forms the basis for our whole relationship with God. Left an O out. Dikaiosune. D-I-K-A-I-O. 
S-U-N-E. Now, Paul is contrasting those who are trying to achieve dikaiosune through the Mosaic Law and those who are waiting with confident expectation for ultimate righteousness and they're operating by means of God the Holy Spirit from the source of faith. That's the contrast. So we have to review a little bit the doctrine of righteousness and imputation. Dikaiosune, this will be point number one, Dikaiosune has a double meaning. In the Greek, the Hebrew word tzedek also has a double meaning. On the one hand, it can mean righteousness. On the other hand, it can mean justice. It's like a two-edged sword. Righteousness refers to the absolute standard of the law. Righteousness refers to the absolute standard of God's perfect character. Justice is the application of that absolute standard to human beings. Righteousness is the absolute standard. Justice is the application of that standard. From that we derive the statement as the standard, the justice of God executes as the application. Therefore, what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. So on the one hand, we have when there is conformity, plus R must accept plus R. When plus R accepts, justice blesses. When plus R rejects, justice condemns. Now that's point number one. Point number one, in essence, what we're getting at is that justice can only bless plus R and will condemn minus R. That's the basis for blessing and condemnation is the presence or absence a perfect righteousness, the perfect righteousness of God. Point number two, the problem in man's relationship to God is that man fails to measure up to this absolute divine standard. Man tries to solve the problem on his own. Man is born since the fall minus R. God cannot have a relationship with minus R because he is plus R, so there is a barrier between God and man called the sin barrier, which is made up of many different aspects and components, but for now we'll just su- summarize it as the sin barrier. Because man is minus R, he is rejected by God's righteousness, and so the justice of God condemns man. The only thing that God's righteousness can accept is plus R. Point number three, though, confirms point two. Isaiah 65.6 says, or Isaiah 65.5, excuse me, all our works of righteousness, righteousness says in the plural, are as filthy rags. No matter how good we are, no matter how obedient we are to the Mosaic Law, no matter how moral you are, the Bible says all that righteousness is, it's not that that doesn't have some value in terms of human relationships, but we're not talking about human relationships, we're talking about a relationship with God. And God says that no matter how good you are, how much morality you have, 
It's all filthy rags as far as he's concerned. Man by man's efforts can do nothing good enough to measure up to God's standards and man cannot gain the approval of God either for the purpose of salvation or the purpose of sanctification based on works that have its origin in his own sin nature. So this takes us back to the doctrine, a review of the doctrine of imputation. Imputation basically means to ascribe, reckon, or credit something to someone for either cursing or blessing. To ascribe, reckon, or credit something to someone for either cursing or blessing. Now in our study, we have seen that there are four real imputations in the Scripture or five real imputations in the Scriptures, and that there are two judicial imputations in the Scriptures. Now, what's the difference between a real imputation and a judicial imputation? In a real imputation, there is affinity between what is imputed and its object. So, when we see the imputation of Adam's original sin... To our sin nature, there is affinity between the two. So that is called a real imputation. When there is not a real imputation between what is imputed and its object, it is judicial. Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness. When our sins, H.S., human sins, were imputed to Jesus Christ, who is plus R, it is a judicial imputation because He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He was never personally culpable for sin. It was simply a judicial imputation. On the same hand, same, in the same sense, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, but there is not affinity there because the believer is minus R. So this again is a judicial imputation. That means it is something that is decreed from the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now, the five real imputations are, first of all, human life to the soul, Genesis 2.7. Secondly, Adam's original sin to the sin nature at birth, Romans 5.12-21, which is our example here. Third, eternal life, that which is the life of God to the human spirit, 1 John 5.11-12, and 12, in regeneration. Fourth, blessings in time to the righteousness of God in us. And fifth, blessings in eternity to the resurrection body. Now, this, these last two are very important. Remember what we have said already. What the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. Perfect righteousness can accept only perfect righteousness. So, here we have God, who is plus R, an absolute justice. He looks down at us. And we are minus R, but we possess the perfect righteousness of God. Now, even though we might produce PR, production righteousness, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, what God is looking at is absolute righteousness. This is the basis for all divine blessing. All divine blessing comes under two categories. Logistical grace blessings and advanced grace blessings. They're all based on who and what God is and not on who and what we are. 
See, we get the idea sometimes, well, if I advance to spiritual maturity, if I go to church and I learn doctrine, then God's blessing me for that. Well, that's a fuzzy way of thinking. See, the idea is that God blesses us because of who He is, not because of who we are. But logistical grace blessings are the blessings of God that are going to come to you no matter what, to keep you alive, food, shelter, clothing, money, the air you breathe, a job, uh, the, uh, a place to learn doctrine. Everything you need may not be everything you want, but everything you need in order to advance spiritually and to continue in this life. Advanced grace blessings is everything else that God has decreed from eternity past, created beforehand in Ephesians chapter 2.10 for us to walk in them, that, that in eternity past, God determined to give you certain things. But God's not going to give them to you or to me until we have advanced spiritually to the point of having capacity for those blessings. Otherwise, when we get the blessings, it's going to wipe us out. By analogy, you're not going to give a five-year-old child the car keys to a 1963 Corvette Stingray. No capacity. Now, you may want to give that child that car, when he's 25 or 30 and has the capacity and the responsibility to handle it. But at the age of five, he has no appreciation or capacity for that gift. That's the same thing. God is not going to give us these advanced grace blessings until we've matured to a point where we can handle them. That's why we continue to grow spiritually. That's why you come to Bible class week after week as often as possible to grow spiritually so that as we advance, God gives us these advanced grace blessings. That's the underlying concept here in verse 5. For we, that is we believers, by means of the Holy Spirit, from the source of faith, are waiting, looking forward to that final redemption when we are face to face with the Lord and we have perfect righteousness. We get there on the basis of faith, and on the basis of the Holy Spirit, not on the basis of the works that we do as morality or in obedience to the law. This is grace, and it's contrasted to legalism. That brings us down to verse 6. Further explanation starts off with the Greek word gar. For in Christ Jesus, that's our position in Christ, positional truth. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, we are all identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, so that we are currently in Christ and we can never lose that position. For in Christ, neither circumcision, that is moral behavior, nor uncircumcision, that is immoral behavior, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Obedience or disobedience to the law is not the issue. That's what Paul is saying there. But faith working through love. Now, what does he mean by love here? You've got three options. Love can refer to human love for other human beings. Or love can refer to divine love directed toward mankind in the provision of of grace blessings for life. That's what this is referring to. Paul is being very short here. He's using almost a shorthand in order to communicate all the concepts. Because he says... 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision. See, he uses circumcision to stand for everything in the Mosaic Law. He doesn't detail, go into detail. He doesn't list all the ways circumcision might be applied or morality might be applied. He just uses this one word to represent this vast doctrinal background. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. And in those two words, he summarizes a vast amount of information. The same thing happens in the last phrase, but faith, working through love. Faith, what faith? Faith in the promises of God. Where did those promises come from? They are the product of the love of God. Remember, what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses, initiated by the love of God in eternity past and given through the grace of God. It starts at the cross. For God so loved the world that He gave His only unique Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated His love for us. Love is the initiator of grace from eternity past. So, Paul summarizes that all in this phrase, but faith, that is faith in the promises of God, working through love, that is the love of God who provided these promises for us from eternity past. Now, he shifts gears a little bit in verse 7, and he starts to castigate them for their disobedience. So we'll wait and get into those next five or six verses next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity we've had to look at Your Word today to once again come in contact with these Scriptures that teach us about our justification and our sanctification, that it is based upon who and what You are, not who we are. That the issue is reliance upon the two power options of the spiritual life, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and Your Word. Now, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of where they will spend eternity, that they would take the opportunity right now, in the privacy of their own soul, directing thoughts toward You. All they need to do is say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That means to trust Him solely. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied, to reflect upon them during the week. God, the Holy Spirit, would help us to see how these things apply to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.